good morning, Integrity Church. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. If you came expecting Ben Tugwell, you got a tanner, better-looking version. Um, I don't have red hair or a beard. Um, I joke. I don't know who's better looking, and I don't want you to answer that. It might hurt my feelings. Um, it is good to be with you this morning. I am the church planting uh, resident, Chris Wilson, uh, here at Integrity. We are uh, positioning our lives to move to Wilmington later this year to plant Restoration Church in the city of Wilmington. And so I want to make two quick announcements, and then we'll get in uh, to the sermon today. One, uh, this year in April, April 8th through the 10th, will be the first uh, women's retreat at Integrity Church. Are all the women excited about that? Yeah, all four of you. Good. Um, the rest of you are probably moms and exhausted, so it's cool. Um, April 8th through the 10th, that's a Friday through a Sunday at Camp Willow Run in Littleton, North Carolina. Uh, there's limited space available, and it costs $85 per person for the weekend. Uh, so if you're interested in that, there's a link online where you can sign up. Uh, we'd love to have you sign up and go uh, do that. Again, that is a women's retreat, April 8th through the 10th. Um, also, if you are interested in hearing more about Restoration Church and our heart for the city of Wilmington uh, and our plans to move there, uh, we are having an interest meeting here at the church on March 13th at 6 o'clock. That's a few Sundays from now. Here at the church, child care will be provided. Uh, we would love to share with you our heart and our vision for the city, our timeline where you could still think and pray through uh, maybe uprooting your life and moving with us uh, to Wilmington to position your life around the gospel. Or if you know you can't move to Wilmington, but you would like to know some concrete ways that you could be involved with the church plant, uh, we would love to have you out here March 13th, 6 o'clock in the evening uh, for an interest meeting uh, concerning Restoration Church. Um, as we get started this morning, I, I want you to know that part of the reason that I know uh, grace and mercy are real things is because my mother never killed me growing up. Um, I was never a big, like, physically intimidating kid. I'm not a physically intimidating uh, man, and I, I, I never really sought to provoke people to want to fight with me because I knew I would lose. Um, but what I had was a very uh, sharp tongue. I, I read a lot. I still read a lot and it was not good at that age because it just made me real sassy it's a terrible descriptor for myself but there it is so my freshman year of high school my sister who is two years older was a junior we conned our parents into taking in a foreign exchange student from New Zealand and so Andrew moved in with us in August of 1998 and at the time my mom was a uh, she cleaned houses for a living so we we got up we went to school my dad went to work at the hardware store my mom cleaned houses and, and places of business uh, to make some extra income for the family. And so with the addition of a foreign exchange brother and how busy life was with three of us now in high school, um, we had to have a family meeting at the dinner table one night. And if you've ever been involved with family meetings at the dinner table, you never quite know how they're going to go. Um, and so we sat down and we're finishing dinner and I, I can take you back to our dining room I can put the table back in place and I can see everyone because this is such a vivid memory of my stupidity. Um, and so my mom says, there's a lot going on. We're all really busy with work at the hardware store and cleaning and just everything that's going on. And so we all need to figure out what we can do to pitch in to help keep our house clean. So there was silence for a few moments. Uh, and then I felt the need to feel said silence. So I kind of looked around the table and I said, you know, we could just pool our money together, Mom, and pay you to clean the house. Like I said, grace is real because she didn't kill me then and there. 
my, my foreign exchange brother I thought was going to fall out of his chair from trying not to laugh at my ignorance. And my dad just looked at me with a look that could kill. And he said, how about you don't talk the rest of the dinner? I said, yes, sir. I will sit right here. I will not say another word ever again. Uh, I got backhanded quite a bit. The spanking wasn't effective, but a backhand would take me out in a hurry. But I, I tell you that story to say that understanding what my mom did for a living and knowing that she was about the business of cleaning other persons, other people's houses made me not want to clean our house. I thought, well, mom does that. That's what mom does for a living. So why would she not then just do that here? And I wanted, this morning as we're in the last part of Acts chapter 1, what I want to make sure is that we have a right understanding of God's sovereignty. Over the past few weeks, Ben has unpacked uh, the sovereignty of God over all things, and especially even over his ability uh, to sovereignly work evil for good, for the good that he has planned from eternity past. But there is a wrong way that we can understand sovereignty where it makes us become passive in our engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Much like I was with my mother saying, well, that's what you do, so you just do it for me and for us. We can take that same approach and wrongly apply the doctrine of the sovereignty of God where we then go, well, I have no responsibility, no skin in the game. God's going to do what God wants to do. And so this morning, as we look at the last few verses of Acts chapter 1, I want to help paint a picture of what it looks like for God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to work together. So that's our, that's our goal, that's our aim this morning as we're in Acts chapter 1. I will pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for the good news of your gospel that rescues and redeems and saves us. And Father, we're grateful that because we have scripture, we know that you are sovereign over all things. There's never anything going on in the world that you are not aware of and you're not working in to bring about the honor and the exaltation and the glory of Jesus. And so we rest in that, but it's not meant to be a rest that puts us to sleep. It's meant to be resting in your sovereignty that propels us to action. And so we pray as we look at the story of the disciples this morning, that we would be encouraged in the midst of confusion and hard time and anxiety and stress, that we would boldly take steps of faith, trusting in your sovereignty. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The scripture this morning is Acts chapter 1, verses 17 through 26. If you have a copy of the scripture, go ahead and turn there, and then I'll give you just a second, and then we'll start reading. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew, or uh, the words will be up on the screen for you to follow along with. Again, this is Acts 1, 17 through 26. Luke records the following. For he, Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted to share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akildama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus and in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, 
You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so as we peek in on the disciples in the upper room, as we close out Acts chapter 1, we see that they are preparing to replace Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Christ. And Luke records in 17 through 20 that uh, Judas took his own life and swelled up to the point that he fell and his guts burst out. And Matthew 27 is a parallel account of Judas feeling sorry for what he had done. Not sorrowful to the point of heart change, but just overwhelmed with grief and sadness over what he had done to Christ. And he takes his own life. And so the, 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 the disciples and the apostles are in the process of finding and naming and installing Judas' replacement among the apostles. The question that we're confronted with first is, why add a 12th apostle back? Like, is God not powerful enough that he could accomplish his goal with 11 apostles and the rest of the disciples and followers of Christ? Absolutely. Christ could have ne- God could have never installed another apostle, and he would not have somehow missed those who were to be the elect who would come to a saving faith in Christ. It wasn't like a third or a quarter of the world would just go completely unengaged with the gospel if he didn't add a twelfth apostle back in. But what, why there's a twelfth apostle added back in is because we know that for the most part, Israel was a nation of unbelievers. They were a picture that was to be later fulfilled of the true spiritual Israel of God, the church. And so what God is doing as these men who are coming out of a Jewish background, now remember, all the apostles were Jewish, and so they had a very Jewish, Hebraic understanding of history, of their history. And so what God is doing is he is showing that the church is the truer and better fulfillment of the picture that was the nation of Israel. And so just like there was the 12 tribes of Israel that helped govern and institute the nation of Israel. So there would be 12 men who functioned to help lead and guide the church as it begins its growth in the first century. And so God in his sovereign goodness is allowing it to be a picture that slides into fulfillment, the picture being unbelieving Israel that is fulfilled in the true Israel of God, the church. And so they're working to find their 12th apostle that would take Judas place. And so what we read in Acts 1, 21 through 23 says this. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And so before we just plow through text and, and, and dive into meaning and how you can apply this to your life today, I want us to just take a minute and try to place ourselves in the upper room with the apostles. We read this and we go, yeah, you needed a guy, so you prayed, you threw some dice down, you picked a guy. Let's get to Acts 2 where things really go crazy. Let's get the Holy Spirit. Let's get some tongues of fire dancing over people. That's like the Super Bowl. Let's get to the Super Bowl. We don't have time for all this. But I, I want us to feel the weight of the anxiety and the fear and the stress and the doubt 
that the apostles faced in that moment. Remember, in Jesus, when Jesus is born, it ends 400 years of silence where there have been no prophecies, there have been no visions, there's been no communication from God to Israel for 400 years until Christ is born. And then we have a three-year arc where Christ does his public ministry. And then Christ is crucified, resurrected, and as we pick up our story in Acts 1 this morning, he has ascended to the Father and has promised to send the Holy Spirit. But you've got to imagine that the apostles didn't know when this would happen. Were they being left for another three or four hundred years to wait on God to send his spirit? They just enjoyed, as they watched Christ in his public ministry and in his death and resurrection, they just enjoyed three years of God with them in the flesh. And now he's gone and he's promising to send the spirit, which none of them know what it will look like. And so they're waiting. And not only are they waiting, not really sure what the next step is for their group, but they're also having to pick a replacement for Judas. Now remember, Christ picked Judas. And Judas betrayed them, betrayed Christ, and had him killed. Now, Jesus knew sovereignly that that must happen to fulfill all that was written about him. And so that he would go to the cross and die and rise again to secure our salvation. But when you're picking the replacement for a known traitor... You've got to think for a moment, what if we get Judas 2.0 in here? Like, what if we get the guy who doesn't just betray Peter or James or John? What if he betrays all of us and we all die? I mean, we just want to read this and we go, yeah, it's whatever. Imagine the weight in that moment. You don't know that the guy you're about to appoint to join you as one of the 12 may not be worse than the guy who just took his own life. But here's what they knew. Here's what they knew. They knew that the gospel was worth maybe losing their life. They knew putting an apostle in place was worth the the chance that they could be betrayed. They knew that getting the gospel out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth was worth an uncomfortable moment of trusting the sovereignty of God when it seemed very um, like an inopportune time. Them. And so we feel that way as they put Matthias and they put justice forward. They're not exactly sure what they're getting themselves into. But as we spend time in the next three verses of Acts 1, I want to walk you through how in light of God's sovereignty, the first century apostles and disciples made decisions and kept moving forward with a plan to take the gospel to the nations. And I want it to serve as an encouragement to us that it is still possible and feasible to be in the midst of uncertainty, lean hard into God's sovereignty, but also take very real and concrete steps to accomplish the work that God has given us. So we pick this up in Acts verses, Acts chapter 1, 24 through 26. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so what we see here, the great reassurance that the apostles operate with in these verses, and we're going to unpack them, the great reassurance that they operate with is this. If God is truly sovereign over the good 
and over the bad. And if he has set all of history in motion from eternity past, then there's no way we can really honestly screw this thing up. And so they begin to act based off of a foundation of trusting that God's sovereignty can't be thwarted, but they have a responsibility to act based off of what they know to be true in that moment of time for them. So we see this in Acts 24, 25. The first thing they do is they model the correct posture for us as we begin to seek what it is that we would do with our life or decisions we have to make. It says this, the prayer is recorded. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. And so in that prayer, the first thing we see as they let the sovereignty of God propel them towards action and decision-making in their own human realm, the first thing that they do, they set two guys forward. They just pick two. They go, okay, you've met the qualifications of being with us from the beginning, knowing Christ, seeing his resurrection. You fit the bill, so we're going to set two of you forward. But then notice the first thing they do before they ever act out. They put themselves in a humble posture of confessing God's sovereignty over this situation. Notice the words of the prayer. They say, show which one of these two you have chosen. So they know there's something in them where they already know that God is sovereignly in control of who will take the place of Judas among the apostles. But what they do is they start with a posture not of I'm as smart as God so I can do this on my own and I don't need to pray. I'll just kind of take an assessment of the situation I'm in and then I'm going to act. The first thing they do is they acknowledge that God will have his sovereign way with picking the replacement. And it would be wise of all of us as we think through decisions, as we wrestle with our responsibility and man's so- man, God's sovereignty. Man's not sovereign. Don't quote me. That, that makes me heretical. As we wrestle with God's sovereignty and our responsibility, the first posture we must take is one of surrendering our life, that we are going to act and move forward boldly in faith, but we trust that God is sovereignly in control of our life, be it good, bad, or indifferent things that happen to us. And that's the first thing we see modeled by the apostles as they get ready to name Judas successors. The one thing I am grateful for here is that they do not go about picking Judas' replacement the way we currently go about picking a boyfriend or a girlfriend if you're a believer. They would still be, we would still be waiting, God knows, on the replacement to be named because they would have found one thing they didn't like with the person that they had put forward and then somebody in the apostles would have to tell the two guys, hey, God told us it's just not meant for us to be together uh, so you can go back and have a seat we're going to pick somebody else. I, I, I say that jokingly but what I want it What I want us to see and realize here with the apostles in the naming of Judas' replacement is this. The doctrine and the reality of God's sovereignty did not paralyze them to the point of inaction. And it did not make them passive participants in the ongoing story of God in history. But the doctrine and the reality of God's sovereignty compelled them to keep acting, trusting that in every step of the way, God's sovereign will would be accomplished. And so they begin first by praying, saying, Lord, you know the hearts of all and you know who you have chosen. So we're going to trust you in that. And then in Acts 126, right after the prayer, notice they don't start 
a six-week Bible study to unpack the prayer that they prayed, and they don't go meet with four other people to talk about what they think they want to do. They pray, and immediately they begin to act. And this is what it says in Acts one twenty-six. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so the apostles cast lots to see who would be chosen by God to replace Judas. It is tough for us to come up with a concept of casting lots because that's not currently how we make decisions. Like, next week, don't roll into church with your settler's dice. Roll them and be like, that's a seven. I can rob somebody on my row and God is sovereign over my robbing. That's not what we're after. But what they were doing is they were acting on what they knew to be true from all of the scriptures that they had at that time. And so what they knew because they were all versed in the Hebrew scriptures and in the stories of the nation of Israel, they knew that casting lots was an approved way to understand and know the will of God. If you go back, Exodus 37, where they're going through all the different specifications of how to build the temple and how to build the supplies for the tabernacle, as they talk about the priestly garments, there's a section in Exodus 37 where they talk about two stones, the Urim and the Thummim. And that's wrong. Don't, that's not pronounced correctly. But there were two stones that went in the breast pocket of the high priest. And they were to be used by the high priest to help understand and determine the will of God in certain situations. And they would have also known the story of Jonah. And how did the guys who are on the ship with Jonah figure out that Jonah is the cause of the storm that they're experiencing? They cast lots on the deck of the boat. They're not even pagan, but they are pagan, and they cast lots. And God in his sovereignty says, I need Jonah's your problem. Over the side, Jonah goes. So they would have known that story as well. And they would have also known almost all the Proverbs, if not all of them, by heart. And they would have known Proverbs 16.33, which says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So this was not just a random, what do we have around that can maybe aid or guide us in the decision-making process here. They took what they knew to be true about God from the scriptures that they had. And having already prayed, trusting in God's sovereignty, they acted in a manner that they knew was an approved way from God to know and understand his will in any given moment and situation. And so they cast lots and it lands on Matthias. And they don't recast him. They don't go, well, we didn't really want him, so let's do this again. We really wanted justice, so let's keep rolling until we get him. They cast him, and then they trust that in their obedience to do what they knew to do to help better understand the will of God, that they could trust in that moment that God would not forsake them and wouldn't just take his hands off the wheel, but he would continue to operate and to guide history. And so I, I want us to know, look, they were at a very disadvantaged position when it comes to making a decision because they were a just getting started with the church age they're still waiting on the holy spirit to come in power we know at least partly they had some understanding of the spirit because at the end of john's gospel john tells us that jesus breathes on them and gives them the holy spirit so there's some operative way that the spirit is currently working in their life but it's not been shown in power and then they take what they know to be true of God from the scriptures they have. And they rely on God's sovereignty. And then 
they act. Isn't it beautiful just the simplicity of their faith in that moment? They didn't meet with 15 people over the course of two years to determine what to do. They relied heavily on the sovereignty of God. They prayed and confessed that they were okay with however God chose to operate. They acted, and then they accepted what God did, which was numbering Matthias among the 11. And I think it's just a beautiful picture for us of how really simple it is. Now that we have the full understanding of how the Holy Spirit works, we have the full canon of Scripture, we can see all of history from beginning to end and how it's going to unfold. And yet, we make decision-making on our, on our part and our responsibility and God's sovereignty. We make it into some sort of weird game where we allow ourselves to be excused from ever risking anything for the sake of the gospel. And so what we do is we'll get together with other believers and we'll talk a lot about how God's sovereign in our lives over the sin and the issues and the joys that we're facing. But that's not really risking anything to the point that you really have to throw yourself on the sovereignty of God. And I think that's a great struggle that we face is we are very good talkers about doctrine and theological thought and we are very poor doers of God's word. And because of that, we remain at a certain sense frustrated with God that we don't somehow understand or know his will. And as we look at the disciples this morning, we see a very clear picture that we pray confessing our dependence on his sovereignty. We act based off what we know to be true about God from his word. And then we trust that as the results happen and as we experience the consequences of how we're moving through our life and the world, we know that God is sovereignly working everything to, together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so that's what the apostles did. And that's a great challenge for us because we live in a time and in a place where it is overly convenient to be a believer. It is convenient to the point that God's sovereignty doesn't compel us to take risks to make sure our neighbors hear the gospel. But it is so overly convenient that we would rather live under the assumption that our neighbors are believers and never risk an awkward conversation, never risk putting ourselves out there for the sake of the gospel. But it's not just the disciples who modeled this for us. Later in Acts, we get another picture of another guy who understands what God is calling him to, takes God at his word, and begins to move and act, trusting that God would guide the decision-making process and that ultimately God's sovereign will would be done. If you still got your Bibles open, flip over Acts chapter 16. In Acts 9, we get the story of Saul. The church, the early church is being persecuted. Stephen has just been stoned. And Paul, Saul at the time, is holding the coats, approving of the killing of the first Christian martyr. And then Saul leaves to go continue to persecute the church. And on the Damascus road, God blinds him and calls him to himself and saves him. And then in Acts 9, God gives Paul his marching orders. He said, you are going to be the one that takes the gospel message outside of the national boundaries of Israel. And you're going to be my appointed person to help get the gospel to the Gentiles. And so from Acts 9 through Acts 15, you see some of Paul's training. He's going through the process of learning how to communicate and 
uh, be clear with the gospel. And then in Acts 15, you have the Jewish council where they get together, all the early believers get together to determine what it is and isn't expected of non-Jews who become believers. Do we make them Jewish first and then believers? Are they believers and then later we make them Jews? And so they're working on understanding clearly that the church is something entirely different from Israel. And they wanted to be clear in how they brought people into that so that people honored and loved and worshiped God above all things and they weren't tied to any extraneous rules or principles. But in Acts 16, after all that is done and they send out their written uh, decree about these are our expectations for Gentiles who become believers, we pick up this story of Paul and his companions in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Trials. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so Paul takes what he knows to be true from his own life, that he has heard Christ himself tell him that he is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He takes what others have decided about the rules, about how we get people into the faith in an orderly fashion. And then Paul immediately begins to work. Paul doesn't sit around and pray and go, okay, God, make this really clear so I don't look like a fool. As long as you'll ensure that I will be successful how I define success, then I'll go do this. Then I'll really trust that you're sovereign and good. Paul doesn't handle his decision-making and his call to action the way that most of us do today, where we want to make sure that we are guaranteed success, and then we'll go do it. Then we'll be bold for the Lord when we're guaranteed success. Paul has no guarantee. Paul just begins to go because what he knows is this. If you die without having a chance to hear and respond to the gospel, you're going to go to hell. That's all the motivation he needed, and it's all the motivation we should need. But what Paul does is he goes and he tries to go into four or five different areas. And along the way, the Holy Spirit constrains him. Does the Holy Spirit not want those people to have a chance to hear the gospel? Absolutely. But remember, we we move and we act trusting that God will sovereignly place us where he would have us to be for maximum impact to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't pitch a fit that he doesn't get in the first time and go, well, I'm taking my gospel and going home. God, when you're ready to bless me, then I'll go. He just keeps going. I mean, the great news about having the Spirit of God, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the Spirit of God in us, and the Word of God to read and to study and to understand is it makes life for a believer essentially the same as bowling with bumpers. Like when you go bowling, if you put the bumpers up, you can't get in the gutter. Like you can't, you cannot waste a single throw down the lane. None of it is wasted. You can bounce it off there 15,000 times. At the end of the day, it's still going to hit its target. And that's how it is for believers when we live in this freedom of the sovereignty of God. We can try a whole host of things. We can bounce off of the constraining of the Spirit and the Word of God over and over and over again. But the only way you don't hit pins when you bowl with bumpers 
as if you hold the ball. And that's just a waste of going bowling. Look, we don't go bowling to hold the ball. We don't receive the Spirit of God and we're not changed by the gospel of God to hold it in. The call is that we understand God's sovereignty, we read His Word, we know His character, and then we're about the business of doing what He's called us to. And you can't screw it up. Trust me, if I'm standing in front of you less than six months away from moving to Wilmington to plant a church, I'm proof you can't screw this thing up. I've tried hard. So there's great freedom. I want to take you to one more place in Scripture where Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Paul gives just a beautiful summation of the gospel message. That we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. That we were unable to save ourselves. But God, being rich in His mercy in Christ Jesus, loved us and called us and saved us. And it is a gift of grace by faith so that no one can boast of their works. But then Paul closes that opening section of Ephesians 2 with verse 10. He says this. For we, meaning not only the believers at the church of Ephesus, but we being all who would come to know Christ, all the elect, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice the encouragement Paul gives to the believers in Ephesus and he gives to us today. And don't miss it. Let the weight of this sink in. You are the only person who ever gets to live your life. And you are the only person who has the opportunities to do the good works that God has prepared for you that you would walk in them. This is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that somehow you living in Greenville, North Carolina right now have the power in your decision making to thwart the sovereign plans of God if you don't do the good works that he's called you to do. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. There is a certain measure of joy and satisfaction in Christ that we miss in our lives when we are not faithfully pursuing doing the good works that God has called us to in our life. And it would be a shame to live always on the verge of feeling like you're you're having a a deeper and truer experience of who God is as you read His Word and as you pray and as you're in community because the one piece that's missing is you're not actively pursuing the good works that God has called you to. So there will never be another person who lives where you live right now with the neighbors you have right now who are going through life experiences that they're going through right now. Never again will there be that opportunity for anyone besides you. There will never be another person who has the family that you have. There will never be another person who has a chance to share the gospel as a son or a daughter, as a cousin, as a niece, a nephew, an uncle, and aunt. Nobody else has the family that you have and the opportunities that you have right now to be about the good works that God has called you to with your family. Nobody else will have the co-workers you have, Nobody else gets the chance to raise your kids the way that you have the opportunity to right now. And so I say all that so that you would feel the weight that there are no wasted days in the life of a believer. Because we are always, always, always called to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us that we would walk in them. And so not only the second reason, the second reason we do the good works is so that we would enjoy 
satisfaction and enjoyment in Christ. But the number one reason we do the good works is this. Christ said, do the good works and let others see it and so glorify your Father who is in heaven. The end goal of eternity is not that we're going to gather around you and celebrate how you never got a decision wrong. Because you're going to get them wrong. But what we are going to do where all of history is moving is toward the exaltation and the worship and the glory of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world to take away the sins of the world. All of history is moving there, and those are the good works that we have. Not that we would be perfect in our decision-making, but that we would be bold to risk the one life we have been given for the sake of the gospel, trusting that God would sovereignly take care of us and that he would be faithful to allow us to enjoy him more and more and more as we are faithful and obedient to what we know to be true of God himself. So will we be a church that is not characterized by only knowing and mentally understanding the doctrines and the truths of who God is in scripture, but will we be people whose hearts have radically been changed by the gospel, where we know and trust and believe that we can risk everything we have and make decisions in full freedom in light of God's sovereignty, that he will work all things together for our good because we are called according to his purpose. That's the end game that we're all going for. That's how we make sure that God's sovereignty and our responsibility don't cause us to be passive hand folders, but they cause us God's sovereignty and our responsibility will cause us to open our hands and give our lives away for the sake of the gospel. God, help that be the case for us. Let us pray.